Well, good morning again to everyone. Uh, you might think that's a slightly strange passage for Good Friday. Uh, it's quite a harsh passage as well. Some of the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke uh, were spoken in that passage. Um, but I've chosen it for this morning for two reasons. Partly because it continues the series we've been doing in Matthew's Gospel in the mornings. It's just the next passage. And also because it's actually a crucial passage that lies at the heart of that week before Jesus died. And it's a passage that does a great deal to reveal to us our own hearts, but also reveal to us the heart of God. Um, So let's pray, because it is a difficult passage. Let's pray that God would help us to understand it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these words and you would speak to us through this passage of Scripture, that on this Good Friday you would reveal to us our own hearts, you would reveal to us the extraordinary heart of the living God. And help us to see something so significant about the death of our Saviour Jesus. And we pray all this for his glory and namesake. Amen. I don't know if uh, many of you recognise this motley crew. Uh, Perhaps you've been watching uh, a BBC programme documentary called The Pilgrimage. I must confess I've not been watching it, but I watched a little bit of it. Um, I think it was last Sunday. Uh, This is a group of celebrities, um, some more well-known than others, who have been for a period of time... A journeying towards Rome in the build-up to Easter. And the idea is, on this program, they've all come from different backgrounds. They all represent different religions, different philosophies. Um, and they're sort of journeying together to try and sort of talk and discuss issues of faith. And it's a very interesting program to watch. I found myself a number of times in the 20 minutes or so I watched, wanting to kind of jump into the TV screen. Uh, partly for two reasons. One, because a lot of the program is set in the Tuscany Hills and they're just walking in the sunshine. I thought that would be a rather nice way of spending some of my time. But more than that, because the kind of the evangelist in me just wanted to sit around the breakfast table with these people because they were talking and sharing issues of faith. And what you saw in all of them, even though most would not have wanted to admit it, is a deep longing for something they had not yet found. It came across really strongly. And also at times they would sit around the table and someone would make some grand sweeping statement and everyone else would go, oh, that's a great point. I just want to say, no, it's not. And if I was there, I'd want to encourage them to think differently. It's an incredible program. But what it shows us is that there are different ways that we can think about life, different kind of worldviews. And our passage this morning shows us a particular worldview that is prolific, but is very, very dangerous. Let me give you some suggestions. There are three ways, I think, that... The Bible tells us we can live our life. The first is characterized by the kind of Psalm 14, verse 1. Um, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. This is the life that's kind of irreligious, godless. There's no God. I'm me. You're you. Let's just live life our own way and do our own thing. And I suspect that's the philosophy that many people live with. Well, that's one way to live your life. The other way to live your life is to live the religious life. The religious life life is often very well motivated, it's often deeply sincere. But the religious life actually, in a funny way, can lead us away from God. Because the religious life focuses so much on what I am doing to please the God whom I serve. And we're going to see from this passage that Jesus challenges religion straight up. The third way to live our life is a life lived in relationship with the living God. And it's a life that leads to a joy that can't be found anywhere else and it's interesting as you look at those three ways to live the first one very obviously takes us away from god doesn't it if i don't believe in god or i'll choose to ignore him i'm walking in the other direction the religious life is interesting because it's subtle we might think the religious life leads us to god but actually it leads us away from god just as quickly and we're going to come and see why the third way is the real way of knowing god 
a relationship with him and it leads to joy. So come to the passage with me and we'll try and see this. We're going to focus in on the religious life and see why Jesus challenges it so strongly. Do you see there in our reading, Matthew 23, verse 1? Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So here we're introduced to three things. We're introduced to people like this. This is a teacher of the law. He's an expert in what's called the Torah, the Old Testament law. And the teachers of the law were prolific in the New Testament. Then there were the Pharisees, who were the kind of experts interpreting the law. And they came up with 613 of their own tiny detailed laws to try and apply the Old Testament law. And then we see Moses' seat. This is a seat that you'd see just inside the doorway in a synagogue on the right-hand side. And it symbolizes um, authority. And this is the kind of seat that these religious leaders would have wanted to sit in. But then Jesus goes on and says, you need to be very careful. Why? Do not do what they do, verse 3, for they do not practice what they preach. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging religious hypocrisy, religious hypocrites. Well, why does he do that? Notice verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to, do you see it there? See. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their flactories wide. Funny word, isn't it? These were little leather boxes which were either attached to the left forearm or on their forehead. You think it's a bit weird walking around with a leather box on my forehead or my arm. But inside, written on parchment, was the Old Testament scriptures. And by walking around with it on my arm or on my forehead, it's a way of saying to people, these are the commands that are close to me that I follow. But these religious leaders wanted to make those boxes big, so everyone can see. It wasn't like a, a matchbox on the forehead, more like a tissue box maybe. The idea is, everyone, I want you to see that I'm very religious. And the key thing is, I want you to see that I'm very religious. Then we have the tassels on the garments. Religious leaders would have tassels, four tassels on the garments, often to keep the garments down from being exposed if it's a windy day. And these tassels would have been blue in the four corners. But of course, the religious leaders wanted particularly long tassels so they could sort of traipse around with these lovely... Look at my tassels, aren't they lovely? But again, it's a way of sort of saying, look at me, aren't I very religious? And then we see verse 6, that these people love... The places of honor at the banquets, they love the most important seats. That's the Moses seat in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces, and they love to be called rabbi or teacher by others. And then comes the real warning. Jesus says, verse 11, The greatest among you will be a servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And there's great irony going on here, because even the word Pharisee is an Aramaic word that means separate one. The Pharisees were proud of the fact that they were separate from the rest of the world, devoted to God. But their separation from the world was taken to such a degree that they actually became separated from the very God that they seek to serve. Because their focus was on their outward religiosity, not on their inward heart attitude. See, these religious leaders would have ticked all the right boxes and signed up to all the right doctrines, but their hearts weren't right before the living God. 
And so what you get in our passage is seven woes, as you heard them read, seven woes or warnings. And in many ways, they they live as stark contrast to the seven Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes are Jesus describing the characteristics of people who belong to his kingdom, and they're beautiful. And the seven woes or warnings here in Matthew 23 are the complete and utter opposite. Now, it's interesting because notice at the beginning of each of these woes or warnings, Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he very deliberately uses this word hypocrite because in the Greek language, a hypocrite was an actor. You imagine in the towns, there might have been a marketplace or maybe a little amphitheater, and you get these professional orators or actors, and they would stand before a crowd, and they had amazing ability to communicate. And what they would do, as you can see from the picture, is they would take these different masks, and they would use them to take on a different persona as they acted something out. So an actor, a hypocrite, could put on a mask that shows an evil tyrant and play the role of an evil tyrant. Then the actor might put on a mask that shows an innocent child who's the victim of the tyrant. And by putting the different masks over their face, they could play a different character. And so one actor, one hypocrite, could play the role of multiple people in a story. That was going on in the culture. Jesus knew that. So he called these Pharisees, these religious leaders, hypocrites, actors. Because he wanted to expose their heart. They were just acting they were playing at this whole knowing god thing and it was all covered up as it were in religion just notice from our passage where is jesus if you just backtrack a little bit from the reading come to chapter 21 and verse 23 where is jesus when he speaks these words (coughs) chapter 21 23 jesus entered the temple courts then fast forward to chapter 24 verse 1 And we read that Jesus left the temple. And so that whole period from 21 to 24, Jesus is in the temple courts. It's interesting, isn't it? That in the very place in Jerusalem where God should have been most honored, Jesus now is talking to people who were not honoring him. Why? Because they were religious. And Jesus hated it. Strange, isn't it? Well, I'm going to come to some of the words. I'm not going to try and explain all seven of them because some of them are quite complex and it would take an awfully long time. But I'd love to give us an illustration from three just to get to the heart of what Jesus is saying in these seven woes or warnings. Notice the first one, verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. The thing that characterized these religious leaders was their efforts to try to please God through being good, through being religious. The one thing that they didn't show was a spiritual heart of repentance. They weren't interested in repenting before God. They were interested in being perfect before God. And of course, other people who started following them wanted to be perfect themselves. But they weren't teaching repentance that lies at the heart of what it means to know God. So the first woe is challenging these religious leaders for being religious, but not being repentant. Then come to the fourth woe, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. See, On one level, they're doing really good. They are 
practicing the tithe, the Old Testament tithe of giving a proportion of her income to support the work of the temple. But by doing this and drawing so much attention to this, they'd forgotten something even bigger. What lies behind the law was a heart of love that is shown through justice and love and mercy. And they're prepared to give in a way of outward showing people what they're doing. Look, I'm giving in the temple. Aren't I a good religious person? But their hearts didn't know God and they didn't care about the vulnerable. They didn't care about the lost or the needy. And so Jesus calls them blind guides. They're trying to guide people in the way to God, but they're blind. And interestingly, they're leading people away from God. And then come to uh, the next bit. It says, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Uh, and that little fly was an unclean animal. And they were so keen not to consume something that was unclean. They'd put a little muslin or something over their drink and they would strain. So when they drank, they wouldn't swallow a little gnat because they didn't dare become unclean. But Jesus here says, there's great irony, isn't there? Because you strain out the gnat, but you swallow the camel. Interestingly, both the gnat and the camel in the Old Testament were unclean animals. He's speaking, of course, in a metaphorical sense because no one eats a camel. But he's saying, you're focused so much on not consuming this tiny, tiny little unclean gnat. And you're swallowing this great camel. And the interesting thing is, in the spoken language, the word gnat and the word camel is very, very similar. Jesus deliberately uses those two as an illustration to say, you focused on the little thing, but you've forgotten the more important thing. And then the third example, the fifth woe, verse 25. He says, you clean the outside of the cup but you ignore the inside. It's this idea that you could walk around carrying these cups and they would be beautiful and clean on the outside, but inside they're still dirty. No one sees that. And he's kind of saying, Pharisees, don't you see the point? Outwardly, you could look perfect and religious and good and moral and upright, but your heart is dark and dirty. And then the challenge intensifies. And I think you might have been struck by the reading, thinking, really, these words came from Jesus? He then says to religious people, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. The very people who ought to have been teaching other people the true way to God were the people who needed true teachers to teach them. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel, that's the first person to be murdered in the Old Testament, through to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the last person to be murdered in the Old Testament. What Jesus is saying is, listen, you are just as guilty as the people who murdered these individuals because your hearts are so far away from me. And then opposition continues. If you have your Bible there, just flick forward to chapter 26. The words will also be on the screen. But the the opposition continues such that these chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. And then we read in verse 67, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. So as you reflect on this remarkable passage, what's the problem with irreligion? And this passage doesn't directly talk about it. Irreligion very obviously leads us away from God because the focus is on me. If I don't believe in God, I just do life my own way. And the great tragedy is so many in our world live that way, thinking that's the way to true freedom. 
and it's not. But from our passage, what's the problem with religion? Perhaps in a far more subtle but just as destructive way, religion leads us away from God. Because the focus in religion is on me. What do I do that God might be pleased with me? And that's what Jesus goes for here. But what we see actually is that true freedom is found in relationship with God. Why? Because relationship with God, the focus is not on us, but the focus is on him. Relationship with God, the focus is not on what I do that God might be pleased with me. The focus is on what has he done so that he is pleased with me. And isn't today, this Good Friday, the perfect day to focus not on what we do for God, but on focus on what he has done for us? You see, rather than carrying the cumbersome loads of verse 4 and placing them on other people, all the things we've got to do so that God will be pleased with us, Jesus said earlier in his gospel, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You can lay burdens on yourself or on other people, religious burden, or you can come to the one who takes your burden. All the difference in the world. Or rather than the self-righteousness of our passage, verse 24, you swallow the gnat, strain the gnat, but swallow the camel. Jesus instead says in our passage earlier on, didn't he, verse 11, humble yourself. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And is it not right that as we look at the cross of Christ and soon as we share in the bread and the wine, the symbols that remind us of what Christ did for us on the cross, does this not humble us? Uh, yesterday afternoon when the sun was kind of setting it got a bit cooler I lit my uh, fire pit just out on our patio and I sat there reading through the back end of Matthew's gospel and two things struck me the first thing that struck me was as I read the trials of Jesus with the Jewish ruling council and then with Pilate the Roman governor I was struck afresh this year of just how innocent Jesus was it's repeated time and time again particularly in Matthew's gospel he was innocent he did nothing wrong people brought false accusations he was innocent. It struck me. The second thing that struck me is just earlier, though, I was reading the passage where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room taking the Lord's Supper the first time. And he said, one of you will fall away. And then he afterwards says, actually, all of you are going to disown me and fall away. And the disciples, one by one, go, it won't be me. And then Peter very boldly said, even if everyone else falls away, I won't. Why? Because I'm Peter. I'm your closest. I'll never disown you. And then just a few verses later, we read of Peter in that cold courtyard that night. And he was by a brazier, by a fire pit, just like I was last night. And Jesus, the words of Jesus came true because Peter had disowned him three times and then the cock crowed and he realized. And as I sat there in the garden, thinking about the innocence of Jesus and then with my own fire pit there, it was as, well, it was as if I was being transported into that temple courtyard and I asked myself the question, when am I like Peter? I'll never disown you, Jesus. I'm one of the pastors at Long Crendon Baptist Church. It's such a faithful church. And I'll never get things wrong. What? Of course I will. And of course I'll be unfaithful. And of course I'll fall short. And as I saw Peter falling short, I recognized how much I'd fallen short. And I hope that today we can recognize how much we have fallen short. But this is why the cross is so wonderfully humbling. Because as we look at the cross, it takes us to the very heart of God. And you see that in verse 37. How often I have longed to gather your children together 
as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. It's a wonderful picture of two things, isn't it? It's a wonderful picture of protection. The living God wants to protect you and me. Protect us from a godless world that would go in a different direction, but also protect us from a religious world that will strive to be good enough for him. God wants to protect us from ourselves. But more than protect us, he also wants us to help to see that we belong. And as he carries us through death as we trust in Christ, not only are we protected from our greatest enemy, the devil and death, but we're also told that we belong And so as we reflect on the cross this morning, we get to the very heart of God and we see just how much he loves us. He wants to shelter us under his wings, rather like a chick is gathered under the wings of the hen. And friends, that's why this little passage ends in Psalm, in verse 39, where Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a psalm that was pointing forward to Jesus. And he chooses in this moment to quote the very psalm that was pointing forward to him because he was the fulfillment of this psalm. Because it's as he died on a cross that we can be protected. And as he died on the cross, we can know that we belong. And today is a day both of remembering and of proclaiming. And that's what we're going to do in a moment. We're going to remember Christ who died for us in the sharing of bread and wine. But we're also going to proclaim this Easter weekend, aren't we? All that he has done for us. Do you see there, Psalm 118, I'll just read from Psalm 118, 15 to 17. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. This is the significant bit. I will not die, but live. And why can that be true for us today? I will not die but live because somebody else died that we might live. And as I remember that death, that death in my place, I can also join with the end of Psalm 118. I can proclaim. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. So friends, my encouragement to us as a church family This special weekend is to remember with gratitude in our hearts and to proclaim with joy in our hearts.